Well, if you have a Bible, could you take it and turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 63, Isaiah 63. If you're not sure where Isaiah is, it's right near the middle. If you hit the book of Psalms, you can head to the right and you will find the large book of the prophet Isaiah. And you're looking for chapter 63, which is near the end of the book, uh, including this sermon, we have three sermons left in our series through the book of Isaiah. Uh, and we find in these final chapters, in the words of one commentator, Alec Motyer, the praying church in, in chapter 63, verse 7, through the end of chapter 64, and the promising God in chapters 65 and 66. So the praying church and the promising God is how we will end uh, our series here in Isaiah. Thinking about prayer, we might be reminded of a, a nearby passage that we looked at in Isaiah 62, verses 6 through 7. In the midst of a description of the future Zion, the Lord says this in Isaiah 62, verses 6 and 7. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Thinking about that verse we said two weeks ago that these watchmen are to watch from the wall, walls of Jerusalem through the means of constant unceasing prayer. They are to be like Simeon and Anna in Luke chapter 2 who were earnestly and ceaselessly watching for and praying for the coming of the Messiah and the fullness of his kingdom. And as we come to Isaiah 63, verse 7 through the end of chapter 64, it would seem that we have actually a prayer of one of these watchmen. And in fact, it's a prayer of Isaiah himself. This is Isaiah's prayer. As we look more closely at this prayer and we think about how it speaks to us today, I believe it would be helpful to consider how this prayer is answering questions like, how do we pray as we wait? Or maybe, how do we pray knowing who God is and what he has done and what he will do? How do we pray in the midst of all those things? For Isaiah, this was looking back to the exodus of God's people from Egypt, that great act of deliverance that Israel always was hearkening back to. Looking back to that and remembering who God is. But it was also looking at, at both the coming exile of he and his fellow Israelites to Babylon and the promised deliverance that was going to come when they left Babylon. And of course, he's also looking for the coming of the Messiah, the sovereign king, the suffering servant, the anointed conqueror who would rescue and then redeem his people. Isaiah is looking back at these things. He's looking forward to certain things. He's waiting for things to come. And while our situation is, is much different from Isaiah's, it's also very much the same. How, how do we pray as we wait? How do we pray knowing who God is and what he has done and what he will do? Or we could say it this way, what does intercession look like in the already not yet of our day? Maybe you remember that phrase that we've used, the things that have already come about and the things that are not yet here, the, the fact that the kingdom is here and yet it is still coming, the fact that Christ has come and yet he is still coming. How do we pray in that tension? We know that Jesus, the Messiah, has come. He has purchased our redemption. We're delivered from sin and death through faith in the perfect life and sacrifice of Christ. And yet, we're also in exile here in this Babylon. We've been delivered, but we're also waiting to be delivered fully at the coming of Jesus, 
when he ushers in the fullness of his kingdom. I think in many ways the, the, in many ways the Christmas season can draw this out of us. We're, we're filled with joy at the thought of God with us, but we also wonder sometimes why he feels so far away. This afternoon we smiled and we sang, Oh, come let us adore him. And then we sort of lamented and we sang, Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom us. We feel captive. We're, we're thrilled by the gift of Christmas and the gift of what it is, and yet we also weep that this gift can't completely fulfill us. We, we gather together and we celebrate and find in one another as brothers and sisters in Christ the love and the unity that we crave. But then we also go out into the world and we're frustrated by all the hatred and all the division that we see. So what does prayer look like for we who are so very aware of God's great salvation, but who also still wrestle with sin in ourselves and in the world, and who are still longing for the fullness of God's kingdom? How do we pray? Well, at the risk of oversimplifying Isaiah's inspired prayer, he shows us this. Remember the Lord's love, repent of sin, and boldly ask for help. I think that's our big idea for today. Remember the Lord's love, repent of sin, and boldly ask for help. Now, I already said that that may be a simplification. Remember the Lord's prayer, remember the Lord's love, repent of sin, and boldly ask for help. But I'd like to simplify it even further. <laughs> With the help of a, a comment from Barry Webb, um, I think we can simplify the big idea into an outline for today that as we pray, we are to look back, we are to look within, and we are to look up. And so that will be our outline. We'll slowly walk through that. But with our big idea of remembering the Lord's love, repenting of sin, and boldly asking for help, and our outline of look back, look within, and look up, let's read Isaiah's prayer. It's in Isaiah chapter 63, uh, and it begins in verse 7, and we'll read through the end. Of chapter 64. Isaiah 63, verse 7, God's word says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and, and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. 
for you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? You see the danger of trying to summarize this prayer in a sentence. Of saying that it is simply remember the Lord's love, repent of sin, and boldly ask for help. But we'll try our best to walk through that. As we think about how we pray while we wait, how we can be watchmen and watchwomen like Isaiah, we see first in Isaiah 63, 7 through 9, that we must look back. Look back. Uh, the contrast between verses 6 and 7 is striking. <laughs> Our passage from last Sunday, you'll remember, ended with Jesus announcing these words, I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. And now Isaiah opens his prayers by saying what? I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. In the light of the reality of God's final just judgment, Isaiah looks back and remembers the covenant love of God. He's, he's not denying the day of vengeance and the wrath of God, but he is holding it up next to the love of God that he has read about in the scriptures and that he has seen in his own life and in the life of his people Israel. And he's holding them together in front of his face. Considering that this is a prayer, it's interesting to see actually how these words are not directly addressed to God. 
I think that could be because sometimes prayer is a bit more like talking to ourselves than talking to God. It's, it's having a conversation with our own souls while we are just more fully attuned to the, to the fact that God knows our thoughts and knows our hearts. This seems to be what Isaiah is doing, given the, given the fact that he doesn't address the Lord with the word you until verse 14. So what, he is saying to his, what is he saying to his soul about who God is? In verse 7, we see a number of things. We see that he remembers the steadfast love of the Lord. He remembers the, the praise offered to the Lord for all that he has granted and given to his people. He, he looks back and he remembers the great goodness of God to his people that flows from his compassion and from the abundance of his steadfast love. Basically, Isaiah recalls all of God's goodness and his faithful love, and he sees that the love of the Lord for his people is a stream that flows from God's very heart, and it's a stream that will never dry up. His love is completely steadfast. And from verse 7 into verse 8, his, his love flows out to his people in a way that, that he binds himself to his people in relationship. The exodus from Egypt is, is obviously in Isaiah's mind here, and we're reminded that, that God is always the initiator in the relationship that he has with his children. He chooses us to be his people, to be his children. And because he has bound himself to us as his children, he then is afflicted when we are afflicted. He feels the pain that we feel. God is in some ways the only person who can truly say to us, I know how you feel. Because the, the purity of his love towards us means that all of the heartache that we face become, becomes his own in the deepest way possible. And because of his, this deep love and affection initiated and kept by God, we find at the end of verse 9 that in his love and in his pity, he redeems us. He carries us. We saw this back in Isaiah 46, 3 through 4, that the Lord carries us all the days of our lives. Maybe you know that classic poem, Footprints. It communicates a kernel of truth as it describes the Lord holding us. But the reality is not that the, the Lord carries us only when we are in need, but that he in his steadfast love carries us all the days of our lives because we're always in need. Isaiah, like so many throughout the Old Testament, looked back to the exodus from, from Egypt as the clearest example of the love and the power of God to redeem his people. And yet for we who are in Christ, the greater exodus has come through the coming of Jesus. His incarnation and his life, his death and his resurrection shine forth as the bright, a bright reminder of the steadfast love of the Lord, of his goodness and his compassion reaching out to redeem us and adopt us as his children and then carry us for our whole lives, to pick us up and take us all the way into the new kingdom. And so we're to look back. We can look back at the Exodus if we want, but even more so we're to look back at the great work of salvation that God has initiated through Jesus. And we're to allow the truth of that and the reality of God's steadfast love shown to us in Christ to shape how we pray. We often say that prayer begins with adoration or praise. And when I say to look back, that's essentially the same thing. If we can look back and, and behold the depth of God's love, a love that caused the Father to send the Son to be the Savior of the world and to send His Spirit to live within us, if we can 
hold that understanding of God in our minds as we come into prayer, then it's going to shape how we approach him, especially when he feels very far from us. We'll be reminded that God is, is the one who spared not his own son, but delivered him up, him up for us also. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? We'll remember that it was when we were without strength that God sent Jesus at the right time. And so, of course, he's going to do it again. In the not yet frustrations of this world, if we can call to mind God's goodness, then we will be strengthened to watch and to wait, and to watch and to wait with confidence. Confidence to know that if he has come in Christ, he will come again and help us in the moment of need that we have. So as we pray, we, we look back. And as we look back on who God is, primarily in his love, but also in his justice, we are also driven to look within. To look within. We see this in chapter 63, verses 10 through 14, but it's elsewhere in this prayer as well. But we look within. This is the season for shopping. It's the season for making lists of things that you want. And it's a joy, isn't it, to give and to receive gifts. But it's also true that these activities can cause us to see what we don't have. <laughs> I've told you before that walking through the mall has a way of making me less and less content. Because <laughs> I compare what's in the shop window to what's in my closet or what's in my home. And I, I feel like I'm missing something, you know. Well, in a much more healthy way, when we look back at the love of God and consider the fullness of his character in all of its grace and justice, we start to look within and we see how far short we fall of his glory. I think this seems to be what happens in verse 10. Isaiah says, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Isaiah knew that the people of the Exodus were much like the people of his own day, much like himself, that they rebelled against the Lord and refused to listen to the promptings of his spirit, even after having witnessed his great salvation. He looked within his people and saw their sin, and he knew that they too had turned away from God's faithful love. Seeing the, the sin of he and his people, Isaiah acknowledges how this sin has caused the Lord not to pursue them in steadfast love, but instead to turn against them as his enemies and to fight against them instead of fighting for them. It's a bold statement there in verse 10. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Alec Motyer offers a helpful but sobering insight on this verse when he writes this, the truth that God hates the sin but loves the sinner, needs the balance and corrective of enmity passages such as these. In the ultimate, sinner and sin cannot be simply held apart. If we persist in our sin, we prove to be God's enemies, and he will fight against us. Knowing this helps us when we arrive at verses like verse 17, where it said that the Lord hardens our hearts and makes us wander away. We don't need to explain these things away, but we need to rather acknowledge that if we in our sin work against the Lord, he's going to work against us. And yet, and yet quick on the heels of verse 10, we're reminded of God's ever pursuing love. Isaiah is again looking back, remembering that while God works against his rebellious people, 
he simultaneously, simultaneously works for and pursues after them. That's something only God could do. Just a, a lyric from one of my favorite songs came to mind, which is uh, that only God can be both the builder and the wrecking ball. <laughs> I think there's a truth to that, that he is both of those. He is one who is, who it, we are his enemies, and yet he is also working and pursuing us. And so we see this, this, this tension that's, that's here, and Isaiah is, is wrestling with this, this tension. And so we look at verse 10 and we see that Isaiah remembers in verse 11 that, that the Lord remembers, that, that God in his justice remembers mercy. And so Isaiah is asking for the power of the exodus of the, the past to be a reality in his present. He's asking for God's strong arm that he saw in the past to show up now and save him and his people. Uh, verse 11 contains the first of a significant number of questions, actually, that Isaiah asks in this prayer. As this, this combination of looking back and looking within leads him to wonder, where are you, Lord? Where, where is the God who parted the Red Sea? Where's the God who saved with a strong arm? As I was thinking about Isaiah's prayer, I wondered, do we, do we feel the freedom to ask questions in our prayers? To look back and wonder where the arm of God's salvation is in the present? In our prayers, are we always making statements to the Lord? Or do we allow ourselves to wonder what in the world he's doing? It's hard to imagine being aware of the depth of God's character and the reality of our sin and the sin of those around us and then not come to God with questions. It's okay to ask questions as you pray. And these are not the last of Isaiah's questions, but we see beginning in verse 15 that he not only looks, looks back and, and looks within, but he shows us also how to look up. How to look up. And we see this in, in chapter 63, verse 15, all the way through the end of chapter 64, verse 12. Look up. I, I think there are actually two key requests in this section. The first is in 63, 15. Look down from heaven and see. And the second is in 64.1, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. So let's think about in verses, in chapter 63, verses 15 through 19, that Isaiah is praying this, look down with pity. Look down, Lord, with pity on us. There's so much deep passion in these verses. The more I read it, the more passion I see. And God is, is seen here in his holy and exalted place there in verse 15 with zeal and might at the ready. He could come at any moment and save his people. But it seems to Isaiah that the stirring of God's emotions and his compassion are being, are being held back. That God can't help his people in some way because he's suppressing his desire to do so. That's how Isaiah understands it. Why are you holding back your love, God? Why are you holding back your compassion? And so Isaiah, feeling that, reminds the Lord of the relationship between he and Israel, that he's a father of this nation. And whether Abraham or Israel know this people, God knows Abraham and God knows Israel and God knows them. So he knows the promises that he made to these patriarchs of the past. He knows the redemption that he has brought in the past. And Isaiah longs for that redemption to come again, to come right now. Think about a broken relationship that you've experienced. 
the deeper that relationship was, the more you long for things to be restored. Here then, Isaiah says that he feels that the Lord, who is their father, is working against them. And he's working against them such that they look like they never were his children. And they look like they never had him rule over them as king. Isn't this a prayer that overflows from our hearts? Maybe not in the exact words of Isaiah. But are there not times when when we know God's love and salvation and redemption and we're banking on this, this truth that he has made us his own people and yet we feel like he is so far from us and we feel like we've forgotten how to walk as his people. We feel like he was never our king. And we wonder why his heart seems so cold and why our hearts feel so hardened. Into that frustration with ourselves and even with God's apparent absence, we cry out, look, Lord, look down on us with pity. Father, restore us to yourself. Remind us of your love. Teach us how to live like your people. Don't forsake us, God. Isaiah is asking, Lord, look down with pity. And as he looks up, he also prays in 64, 1 through 7, he says, come down with justice. Look down on us with pity, but also come down with justice. It's a little striking, but everything seems to rise to the surface in 64, 1. And Isaiah says, oh Lord, that you would tear the heavens open and come down. You ever pray that way? He he longs for God to come in power such that the mountains would quake and the justice of God would burn and consume all of his enemies and all sin like we saw at the beginning of chapter 63. That his power would flash across the sky like lightning so that all the nations and all the enemies of God would see and tremble at the power of God working on behalf of his people. He looks back again in verses 3 and 4, remembering how mightily God worked on behalf of his people in the past. David in in 2 Samuel 22 describes how God, it was like he was bending the heavens when he was coming down to rescue David. And in the exodus and the the parting of the Red Sea, it revealed God's power on behalf of those who wait for and, and trust in him. And Isaiah wanted to see that same kind of power wielded on behalf of Judah to keep them out of exile. And our hearts too sometimes long for God to come down and make everything right, to purify our hearts, to purify the church, to purify the the world with his holy fire. We know the fearfulness of the day of God's vengeance, but we also know the rightness of God's righteous judgment. And sometimes we just want him to tear open the heavens and come down and make everything right. And Isaiah longs for that. And yet while he longs for it, he also knows that if God does come in his might and his righteousness, then he and his people are going to be completely consumed. From the second half of verse 5 through verse 7, Isaiah again looks within at himself and at his people. And he wonders if maybe they've been sinful for just too long. And he shows how deeply he understands their sin and our sin. Those descriptions from the end of of the second part of verse 5 through verse 7 help us understand our sin deeply. 
There's many pictures here. In our sin, Isaiah says, we are unclean. We're like the leper. Our disease goes deep down and it corrupts everything that we are so that we could cry out all of our days, unclean, unclean. We see in in verse six that even our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Literally, the word refers to clothes that have been stained with menstrual blood. Motyer says that these discharges were linked with procreation and were associated closely with the fall. Therefore, he says, even what we might consider to be in our favor flows from a fallen nature. In our sin, Isaiah says, we're like the leaves that so recently fell to the ground and were taken away by the wind. Our sin brings death, causes us to decay, and we're easily easily swept away by God's judgment. Sin infiltrates us deeply and it affects every one of us. There is no one, verse 7, who calls on the name of the Lord. And because of this, we are alienated from God and his face is turned away from us. And so in light of all of this, we see that if God is going to come in justice, if he's going to rend the heavens and come down, then we're going to be consumed in his wrath. So therefore we give thanks that God doesn't come first in his justice, but he comes first in pity. He comes first with mercy. Jesus rends the heavens and comes down in humility as an infant born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth. He comes not to judge the world, but to save it. He comes to touch the unclean leper and heal him. He comes to declare the the filthy clean, like the, the woman with the flow of blood that wouldn't stop, who was healed when she just touched Jesus' garment. He comes to raise we who are dead leaves bound to be burned up in judgment and to give us new life, to graft us into him so that we can bear fruit. He comes to save the world, the whole world, because the whole world is in rebellion against him. And he comes to look on us, to turn his face towards us in mercy. We look back to Jesus and we see in his perfect life and his atoning death, our hope. We look within and we see not that we can save ourselves, but we see the depth of our sin. And so we look up and we ask God for pity, for mercy. And for all who repent and all who call upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. God will most certainly come in righteousness. God is going to rend the heavens and he's going to come down and render his justice. But because he has come first in pity and in grace and in mercy, all who believe in him will not be crushed when he comes in his justice. The final plea of verses 8 through 12 is a beautiful one, isn't it? And I think it brings together all the passion of the prayer that Isaiah has uh, to a close. It recalls God's great love and it recalls it primarily in terms of relationships that that he is a father and and he is the potter who made us. And and Isaiah asks for God's mercy with a simple request in verse 9. I love those words. He just says, please look. We are all your people. Please look, God. 
Isaiah looks around at all the devastation around him because of his people's sin. He sees the broken temple and he sees broken people. And he asks in verse 12, if you look at this question that closes, he says, will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? God, if you're our father, aren't you going to come and do something? And we know in Christ that God saw us all in our sinfulness and in our devastation. And so he sent Jesus to save us. And so we can pray, please look. We are all your people and we can know that God will come and save us because he has. But can I close by saying that, that knowing this, knowing that he has come and knowing that we can pray and that he will come and save us, that knowing all that doesn't mean everything makes sense. And it doesn't mean that our prayers are always really easy to pray. Every once in a while, I buy a present at a store that does free gift wrapping. And it always turns out so beautifully, much more beautifully than when I try uh, to wrap a present. And there's either too much paper or not enough paper. <laughs> I think sometimes we think our prayers should be like store-wrapped presents, uh, neat and perfect, tied up with a beautiful ribbon. But I think prayer, it's, it's usually more like your home-wrapped present, you know? Sometimes it's like a gift that you threw in a Kroger bag and dropped on someone's lap. <laughs> and that's okay. I gave you this beautiful, simple outline for this prayer. But you've probably seen how, how easily that outline just unravels as you look at Isaiah's prayer. Or at least how Isaiah does anything but neatly walk through those points and then sort of just call it a day, right? It's not how he prays. Rather, there's this pushing and there's this pulling in his own heart about who he knows God to be and who he sees that he is and who he understands his people to be and what he sees happening around him. And, and all of this leads to some impassioned pleas for God to look down on them and to come down and to rescue them. That wrestling is only further highlighted by the fact that this prayer ends how? It ends with a question. That's how he ends his prayer. We've been asking, how do you pray? How do we pray while we wait? And one answer to this is by saying, remember the Lord's love and repent of sin and boldly ask for help. Or, or we could say, look back and look within and look up. But it's also right to say that, how do you pray? Well, you pray knowing that prayer is often a struggle and it's gonna be a struggle until Christ returns and that many of our prayers are gonna end with a question mark. But I think that the testimony of Isaiah's prayer here, and maybe just the, the beauty of the fact that it is here in the scripture, it announces this truth that God wants our questions. He, he wants all of our uncertainties. He wants us to look back on who he is, to look within at our own sin, to look up to him for pity and for justice, and then to tell him when the picture of the past doesn't look like our present. He wants us to tell him when he feels cold and distant from us. He wants us to ask him to rescue us. And then he wants us to wonder why he doesn't. He wants your Kroger bag prayer. 
So my prayer then is that Isaiah 63 and 64 would sort of invite us into this kind of waiting prayer that wrestles with God and sees that that's okay. But that it would also invite us into the kind of prayer that looks to Jesus and knows that he is the anchor of our souls so that when all around our soul gives way, he is all our hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock we stand, and to him we pray. Everything else is shifting sand. But he's a firm foundation that will never move. And he's never moving even if we don't have all the answers to our questions. We can trust in him. Would you join me in a moment of silence as we reflect on God's word? And then I will pray for us. Father, we thank you for this prayer that teaches us how to pray as we wait. Lord, that calls us to look back and remember the greatness of your salvation and the depth of your love and the relationship that you've brought us into by your grace and through Christ. That calls us to see how deep our sin is, but also how deep your love is for us. It calls us to look up to you to seek your pity and to seek your justice. And Lord, also just to ask all of our questions and know that even if we don't get answers here and now, that the answers will come. And we know that because of Christ. We know that he has come as the perfect expression of who you are and that it's in him that heaven's peace and perfect justice kiss this guilty world in love. So Lord, teach us even in this season of joy, teach us how to wait, how to struggle and how to wrestle and how to long for you to come and to save us fully and finally. Let's call this in Jesus' name. Amen.